Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in the design, manufacture, and service of aircraft and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. PrattWhitney.com TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program. TAConnections.com Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. And Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. SeaburyCapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Hello to all of our Airlines Confidential listeners. This is Ben Baldanza, and I'm glad you've joined, and I'm pleased to welcome you to our 100th podcast. It's been almost two years since Seth Kaplan and I launched this program. Seth stepped away at the beginning of this year, and I was joined by Chris Chimes. When Seth and I started the program, we weren't sure where it was going to take us, but it has been an airplane joyride of sorts. First with Seth, and now with Chris, we've learned a lot, made some changes, and continue to grow our listener base. Ben, I want to echo your sentiments and share a few things with our listeners. First, a couple little fun facts. There are almost 4 million podcasts registered around the world, according to podcastindex.com. In the Apple Podcast platform, there are more than 750,000 active podcasts right now. So lots of podcasts get started, and then they peter out, kind of like the success rate of a restaurant. But an even smaller percentage of them are able to sustain a cadence of publishing new content on a weekly basis. And that's what we've been able to do with the support of our sponsors and our listeners. Now, there are obviously some high-profile podcasts with very large listener bases. Joe Rogan, Pod Save America, The Daily by the New York Times, Crime Junkie, This American Life, Barstool Sports. And my personal favorite, Smartless. But for the most part, podcasts are very small operations with an average listener base of less than 100 downloads per episode. The top 1% of all podcasts have a weekly listenership of more than 3,650 listeners a month. Now, obviously, some have into the tens or hundreds of thousands, and we're not suggesting we're on the same level as some of the mega-hit podcasts Ben mentioned just a minute ago. But to crack that top 1% threshold, you need to be able to account for 3,650 weekly downloads. And that's why we're so excited to say that Airlines Confidential is in that top 1% of all active podcasts. Since the start of this year, we've continued to build our listener base, both here in the U.S. and internationally. We can see it in the stats, we see it in the questions, and the comments we get from our listeners. And as we've moved to incorporate guests on a regular basis, that seems to have resonated with all of you. And we hope you're enjoying the conversations with a variety of industry experts. Ben and I learned something from every guest, and hopefully you do too. We've got another great guest today, Christina Casotis, the CEO of Allegheny County Airport Authority that runs the Pittsburgh International Airport. She's going to join us in a few minutes to talk about their new airport terminal plans and how they are planning for this transforming industry. But first, Chris, let's cover off a few of the week's news items. Thanks, Ben. We'll start with a familiar topic, business travel and overall airline travel demand. Seems like the industry took a hard landing along with Labor Day and the end of the traditional summer travel season. One day last week, TSA screened 1.35 million passengers, the fewest since May 11th. 
United extended the validity of unused tickets purchased as far back as 2019 until the end of 2022. Bloomberg published a survey of 45 large international companies across the US, Europe, and Asia, and 84% say they will spend less on travel on a go-forward basis, citing cuts of 20 to 40%. So Ben, think about this one. If you were a jukebox and I put a quarter in your ear, what song would you be playing about now? That's a good way to think of it, Chris. I think I would play The Long and Winding Road by the Beatles. <laughs> because that's how it seems we're on. Um, early this summer, the industry was looking at a bullish summer for traffic with a lot of pent-up demand and airlines putting a lot of capacity and filling airplanes. And that made people confident. Businesses were talking about workers coming back to the office on September 1st or September 10th or things like that. And more and more people are getting vaccines. Then as we got into the summer and the Delta variant started, businesses started saying, well, maybe we're not going to come back to the office so quickly. And several airlines have announced they're going to lose money in the third quarter. And Traditionally, this business bump that happens in the fall with more trade shows, conventions, and business replacing family vacations from the summer, it looks like it's not going to happen in a big way this summer. And we just keep winding and winding and coming back to when are we going to get to a world where businesses and leisure are really traveling again? So let's pick up on that a second and more on the international front. The EU has pulled the U.S. from its safe travel zone list with our spike of the Delta variant here in the U.S., resulting in some temporary route cancellations. Many parts of the Caribbean are rolling up the welcome mat again and canceling uh, access or, or limiting access to islands. China's top three airlines are saying that they expect restrictions on international flights well into the first half of 2022 due to the COVID prevention measures for the Winter Olympics there in Beijing. So we're into September. We're getting ready to wind up the third quarter for most airlines. And so as they're getting ready to report out earnings in about a month or so, what do you think they're preparing to share with analysts and investors? That's a good question, Chris. I think it really depends on the airline. You know, the big four airlines in the U.S., American, United, Delta, and Southwest, are probably going to all be fairly cautious, talking about, you know, slowness in the recovery of business travel. The more forward-looking of those may want to make some projection about what that means for 2022, or maybe they'll be nervous to do that. Those that may be American might say, well, the good thing about Brexit is that the UK is not in the EU and the United States can still go to the UK. So they might try to say that their transatlantic won't be as affected somewhat as the others. I don't know if that's true or if they'll say that, but it is different the way the UK is responding versus the European Union. And it's Brexit that made that possible. And I think the low cost carriers are just going to keep pounding the fact that they know how to make money on leisure, that they never carried the business traveler anyway. So if the business traveler doesn't show up, they don't lose anything and they're going to continue to be aggressive. And I think that's going to be the story of the conversations this fall. A real different tonality, I think, from the second quarter when basically everyone was fairly bullish about a return. I think it's going to be a little more circumspect in terms of, well, it looks like the business traveler isn't coming back quite so quickly. 
So Ben, let's revisit a topic we really don't like to keep repeating, but it seems like we do, and that's Boeing. They continue to not catch a break. Over the weekend, the Wall Street Journal broke the story that the 787 Dreamliner deliveries will likely remain halted until at least October, as Boeing has been unable to persuade the FAA that its proposal to inspect aircraft is a sufficient fix. This impasse prohibits the manufacturer from delivering the 100 or so aircraft still in inventory, and perhaps even more concerning, allows some buyers to walk away from their commitments. Inquiring minds want to know, Ben, what do you think? Well, I think this is a direct result of a couple things. It's a clearly a result of the 737 MAX issue, which made everyone sort of rethink what is the role of the oversight authority, meaning the FAA, in approving airplanes to be certified and such. So everybody has sort of a heightened awareness and a heightened sensitivity for we've got to get this right and we can't let something go wrong. And it's I'm not going to say that without the MAX issue that the FAA would have approved this because they may not have still. I don't know enough to say whether they would have or not. But what I can say is that all of the antenna are up in bigger ways than before that. And so it's not completely surprising to me that the FAA is saying, you have to really convince me that you have the right methods and the right programs in place to inspect this aircraft so it can be safe. Now, for the airlines that were taking delivery of these planes, they're probably secretly not all that upset since the international traffic is so weak right now. And as we just talked about, the return of long haul international traffic seems to be the longest pole in the tent. There are probably a number of airlines who are fine taking this plane a year later or two years later than they had originally planned to because they may not have a great place to deploy it right away. On the other hand, it really hurts Boeing because then they're on the hook for having those shells, having to mothball them for some time or slow the production line down. So it's a real hit on Boeing. I'm not sure the industry itself is going to be all that upset about this, again, because there's just not right now the perfect place to go fly a brand new expensive big airplane a long distance because there's not a lot of those flights happening. So I think Boeing's a big company. Commercial aircraft are a big part of what they do, but it's not all of what they do. They do have sort of success now in selling the 737 MAX again. They've had a number of big orders for that airplane and they seem to have really turned the corner on that. So I think they'll get through this. I'm sure it's frustrating for them. And eventually, I think they're going to deliver most, if not all, of these 10787s that they had previously sold. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I don't think uh, any major airline's going to be unhappy that these are being delayed as far as delivery. I, I wonder if anyone's really going to walk away from them, thinking about the long game and, and the eventual need for these wide bodies. But it, it's not helpful for Boeing, obviously. And, you know, look, when you're on the defensive, the other side, uh, and I'm not suggesting airlines are on the other side, but, you know, I saw something over the weekend that Ryanair walked away from negotiations over more uh, 737 MAXs. Air airlines are going to look for opportunities to get leverage. Negotiations are always about the leverage. And right now, Boeing doesn't have a lot of leverage uh, anywhere. So uh, they're they're going to 
kick and claw for every deal. You're right, Chris. And if you want more leverage with your hotel suppliers, Travel Alliance and Hotel Connections have come together to become TA Connections. TA Connections provides an intelligent, integrated, and flexible suite of applications that allow airlines to deploy an industry-leading mix of augmentation and automations tools, configurable and personalized to your unique needs. Learn more at taconnections.com. TA Connections is a fleet core company and the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. Ben, a last question before we get to Christina. Uh, And this is probably of interest to her as well because Southwest has become an important part of the Pittsburgh airport uh, infrastructure. What do you make of this lawsuit filed by the Southwest Pilots Union alleging that the airline violated labor laws and its contract with the union by making changes in work rules and pay without a negotiated agreement? Well, Chris, we just talked about leveraging negotiations, right? <laughs> and, and that's what this is. The interesting thing about this is Southwest has, for many, many years, been a real model in the industry for treating people really well, not just customers, but their labor and their employees as well. And they've tended to have really good relationships with their pilots, flight attendants, mechanics, and others. So having this sort of public spat with the pilots, I think is a bit of a, it's a bit of a stain on an otherwise really good brand and company that's known to do these things kind of well. I think they'll get through this, certainly. The pilots recognize that they have some leverage from this. And, you know, when you have a contract that says you do things one way and then the situation changes and you have to do them another way, airlines and unions both at times have taken advantage of that to try to push the envelope in different ways. Whether Southwest violated their contract or not is something a judge and an arbiter will decide. I think the real unfortunate news of this whole thing is not that the pilots and management at Southwest might disagree on something. I'm sure that happens a lot, and we know that happens at every airline, but this has become so public at an airline that's not used to that sort of thing. I was on a communications professional group call uh, last week, and this topic came up, and there were no other airline people on it, but... They were viewing this as um, an example of the tension between workers and management on a broader scale with regard to kind of like frontline workers at Amazon who are in the warehouses and delivering versus the office employees who are safely working at home and not having to venture out. And, And they saw this lawsuit as part of that kind of tension too with regard to Everyday airline employees are out on the front line, being at risk, dealing with the public and doing their jobs. And yet airline management is still for for large parts like working from home and, and working remotely. And so there's that kind of thing bubbling up in lots of workplaces, not just airlines. And so I hadn't thought of it that way, but there might be some of that as well. That's an interesting way to think about it. And every company has issues that are microcosms of the broader economy, probably in lots of businesses too. Well, we'll be right back with our chat with Christina Casotis. But first, we want to thank Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in the design, manufacture, and service of aircraft and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is driving the next generation of more sustainable travel. 
this revolutionary geared turbofan engine is allowing airlines and airports to open new routes and fly more people farther and with less fuel and much lower noise. Learn more at pwgtf.com. It is my true pleasure to welcome and introduce our guest this week, a friend and a terrific executive in aviation, Christina Casotis. Christina, it's great to have you with us. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, why don't we start by your telling us about your background and how did you become the CEO of the Pittsburgh Airport? Uh, well, let's see. I really became the CEO because I fell in love with the Pittsburgh story during a recruitment process. I can tell you that when I first got the call from the headhunter, I said, I'm not going to Pittsburgh. So the, the community sold me on it. I had been in consulting for 17 years with SH&E, eventually came to lead the airport practice, had been working with airports around the world, and really fascinated at the big disconnect between the way that U.S. airports run in, in business terms uh, versus the way uh, some privatized and infrastructure fund funded airports run. So I, I was really interested in trying to figure out if there was an opportunity to bring a little bit more of a private sector focus into a U.S. model, a governance model that U.S. airports live by. And um, that's how I got here. I worked at Massport early in my career. My dad was a pilot for Pan Am and then United. And um, I just didn't even know that airports were a possibility until I got the job in Boston in my 20s. So it's just been a it's been a, a curse and a blessing, I guess, because I, I can't seem to leave the airport industry. <laughs> Christina, the uh, construction project at Pittsburgh has gotten a lot of national attention you know, going back a couple years now. Can you tell us a little bit about what it's meant to do and how it's going to transform the Pittsburgh airport that many of our listeners know and have gotten used to? Yeah. It, it, well, first of all, you know, from a, from the perspective of, you know, being at your gate, getting off the plane, it, that's not going to change. The X design that uh, Tasso Katsalas pioneered back in the whatever, late 80s, early 90s, that works really well. And we're not, we're not going to do anything to that except upgrade it and give it a really big facelift. The big change is at the headhouse, the pre-security functions of baggage claim, check-in, and TSA, all of that will be in a new building that will be up against the building where the gates are. So the train goes away and the building where people check in today or pick up their bags today, that goes away. As a consequence, we'll build a new roadway system and we will build a new garage and rental car center. So it's a big program. It's The good news is it's only three years to construct just because of the fact that we can build it um, while we operate the existing terminal. And the, the transformation really is, is, you know, is that the train goes away uh, and we have a much more cost efficient, sustainable, and uh, I would say user-friendly experience that quite frankly is gonna save the airlines quite a bit of money on operating going forward. Well, that'll be music to airlines' ears, Christina, for sure. <laughs> so you were the CEO of the airport when this pandemic hit. Tell us what it meant for you running an airport, and what did you have to do quickly, and how did you react to sort of the, all the changes that happened once all of a sudden people didn't want to travel? 
Well, you look at the the first thing we you know we had been tracking it for quite some time. My team and I had been in China in in December, and we were hearing rumblings about something going on. So we came back. We you know we dusted off our pandemic plan and. When the World Health Organization declared the pandemic, we went right into action. The most, I'd say, the most challenging thing was really balancing how to keep the team safe, informed, and motivated. When you had some folks who had to do their jobs physically on site and others who didn't, that was a that you know making sure that people understood why we were making the decisions we made was critical. And I would say that that was a, a terrific challenge: was to make sure that people understood, in the absence of any information anywhere else, you know what we were doing and why we were doing it. Which we did through. I actually did a, a call every Wednesday on each shift for months until I think September, and then we went to every other week just to let people know what was happening. It turns out that a lot of their spouses were listening in at that time because nobody was talking to them in their jobs. So I would say that the, the the hardest thing for for us was to keep everybody safe, informed, and motivated because we knew that the mission was to enable essential passenger travel and to make sure that our cargo flights could get in. We knew that we would end up being an alternative gateway for cargo at some point, just because of what was happening with e-commerce and the fact that people were going to be in lockdown. And so it was, you know, it was that was the challenge was making sure. We could sort of manage that tension at all times, and and understanding, or I would say, communicating to the greater community, the people not in aviation who would ask the question. So, are you guys closed? And I thought, wow, how could you even ask that? It 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 sort of shows you what people do and don't understand about the role of airports in a community. Because、um, if you're closed, you know, Amazon's not delivering. I can tell you that, and and people can't get home when they're stuck trying to figure out how they're going to. Get back to where they could quarantine. So we had a lot going on, as every airport did. Christine, it's hard to believe that it's been more than 15 years since Pittsburgh lost its hub status. When U.S. Airways closed that hub, how do you think the airport and the community have done in attracting a variety of carriers, and where are the opportunities moving forward to attract more air service from more airlines? Well, that was the whole reason I was brought in 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 '04. You know, when when and I know you guys have a history with U.S. Airways, but in '04, when the, you know, sort of the final nail was 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 banged into that coffin for the hub, I think what the what the airport did was they really just tried to stop the bleed, and there there were some there were some efforts to bring in more air service, but they were clunky. Is what I'd say. So when I got when I got recruited in fourteen,、uh, and I was talking to folks on the board and in the community about the opportunities for the airport, everybody kept asking me how how we could bring another hub carrier, in, and I said you can't. Those days are over, right? I mean, you know this, right? The fundamentals, the economics that made a medium sized airport possible as a hub were no longer in play. Southwest Airlines, nine eleven. Ultra low cost carriers, it just doesn't work. And you know, the good news is that the community was was willing to listen to anything that would allow them to imagine more air service. And so I said, look, we can we can be a really good origin and destination airport. So let's go after the service that this community needs today, and let's make sure we're building for the future. Well, how do you do that? You find you know you figure out the communities of interest. You figure out really at a deep granular level. 
what the community needs. And so we went from, when I got there at the beginning of 15, there were 37 destinations served nonstop which I don't know if you guys remember, but it was up to 110 at the peak of the hub, where you could get to 110 places every day out of Pittsburgh. And when I got there, you could get to 37. So we built back up to 70-something prior to the pandemic, and my expectation is there's still room to move. Uh, There are some West Coast markets that still need to be filled in, and I think we can, I know we can support more to Europe than we had right before the pandemic. So you know, I, I see the same opportunity for Pittsburgh post-pandemic as I did pre-pandemic. And I think that that we will continue to see increased air service because it's a, it's a good market. And um, I'm not one of the people who believes that business travel is dead. So I think that as we, as we see that pick up, we will see more frequency return to some of the business markets like Boston. Uh, that we saw pre-pandemic. That's a great lead into the next question, Christina. We've been talking a lot about the changing mix of business and leisure air travel. The industry saw a nice summer in terms of leisure volume, but this fall it's uncertain with the Delta variant and such, how quickly business is going to come back. How are you thinking about that? And if business travel doesn't come back for a year or two or three How are you thinking about that? And is the terminal construction you talked about a few minutes ago, is it consistent with possibly a change to more leisure? Oh, I think it's fine. I think the terminal construction is what what type of passenger is in there is irrelevant. Even even if even if a hub came back, the the new infrastructure could support that. I mean, we are making sure that that infrastructure is going to meet the needs of any airline that's going to serve that market, whether that's an ultra low cost carrier with a lot of frequency or inconsistent frequency, or it's an international carrier with, you know, four or five flights a week, we can support anything that's in their business leisure mix. I don't, the, the infrastructure is, is built to be flexible and to accommodate whatever demand is there. So I think that that's an easy one. Look, the Delta variant has been the, has been the wild card in all of this. People are dying to, to get back on the road. Uh, you know, for those of us who have spent careers traveling, we miss it and we'd like to be doing it again. I think it will change. But I also think that at the end of the day, face to face is the only thing that really works for long term sustained relationships. And eventually we will get back to that. So I fingers crossed it's not three years. But I, I mean, I'm sure you guys have heard this over and over again. I remember people talking about business travel being over after 9-11, right? We, yep. we all heard those stories. There's always a reason why business travel wasn't coming back. And I think this is just going to be another extended blip, but it will not be permanent. So I'm a little more concerned that it's taking longer than I would have hoped, but that has everything to do with our ability to manage this pandemic. So I want to follow up on a couple of earlier comments, and maybe you can pull it all together here, Christina. Explain for our listeners, how are airport modernization projects, airport spending, airport debt, how are they compatible or in conflict with cost pressures from ultra low cost carriers and even the major carriers? Well, listen, I, I mean, we, we had an opportunity. We, so the, the facility that, that I manage is 30 years old. And so you've got things that are starting to break down, you know, um, vertical transportation, elevators, escalators, moving walkways. These things either have to be replaced 
or you got to start over. We were at a fork in the road, right? What do we do in order to accommodate the demand going forward? What do we do? Do we fix what we have or do we do something different? And through a master planning process, which is very common, and every airport does one every five to 10 years, you take a look at your infrastructure and you say, what do we have? Is this is this going to do for what we have going forward? When U.S. Airways left, they left 100 gates in Pittsburgh, 100 gates. There's not an airline out there that wants to pay for sustaining that infrastructure. So our modernization program is right-sizing the terminal. It allows for flexibility, so it has to expand in the future. It can. But we're going to reduce the footprint. We're going to lower costs because there's less facility to maintain. And the facility that will be maintained will be far more efficient. It will be more energy efficient. It will be more you know, sustainable. It will allow for a better retail mix, which will allow us to better support the airlines through increased revenues. So look, infrastructure, you have to invest in infrastructure at some point, unless you want to be paying for costly maintenance. So I would say that regardless of the business model, the the modernization program, the upgrade that we're going through at Pittsburgh is A, necessary, and B, completely compatible with any business interest that wants to operate at the airport. Because otherwise, you're just paying for really old infrastructure that you're sort of slapping Band-Aids on, and that doesn't make sense. And, and not to mention the fact that we have, that, that infrastructure was not built for TSA checkpoints. That was built pre-9-11. So now you got long lines and lots of people standing way, way far away from where they eventually have to clear through TSA, getting stressed out uh, before they get on their flight. So from a customer service perspective, it's from a passenger service perspective, I should uh, reiterate, it's just, it's a lot more passenger friendly than what we have today. So I just think that there's, there's no question that this was the right, this was the right thing to do. It's not a, it's not a vanity project, right? I mean, it's, it's necessary. We need to do this. Well, Christina, my money's on you uh, over, <laughs> an air, over an airline executive who was trying to push back on this project. So that was well, a fantastic answer. So. Yeah, no, th- thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. I also appreciate, you know, the fact is that, and I, you know, I know you, got, you guys are airline guys, although Chris, I know you're sort of dabbling in a new industry now, but at the end of the day, right, we're, we're all in the industry of moving people and goods. And the fact is, that you cannot do that without the infrastructure. You can't. You, the plane has to land somewhere. It has to discharge and, and onboard its passengers or cargo somewhere. And I actually think it's, you know, it's borderline irresponsible not to upgrade on a regular basis uh, in order to make sure that it's doing everything it can so that its partners, the airlines, can operate as efficiently as possible. That's our job. And, you know, there's a there's always a fine line between what do you have to do and what do you want to do? And I feel like because of the process we went through with all of the airlines over four years, every month we met, um, the airlines help us design this. They, they're the ones who who have not only figured out what a baggage claim of the future should look like and the systems that support it, but how it how those costs should be distributed. And I think that that's the model that we all need to be looking at going forward. Is, is one of actual partnership as opposed to, um, what's that, like a, you know, a, a battle. We'll be right back with more of our conversation with Christina Casotas. 
But first, a reminder that Seabury Capital Group is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, and financial services and technologies. Seabury Capital Group's award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge, along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology and solutions, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. Ben? Christina, so you're not a hub anymore. Nope. You've got New York to one side, Chicago to the other, Atlanta to the south, millions and millions of people within an hour or two from your airport. What role do you think Pittsburgh Airport plays in the national air transportation system? Well, first of all, uh, we we play a critical role in the national air transportation system. It's actually one of the first things that I talked about after, you know, after we all sort of got back on our feet once the pandemic was declared. I I did a video that we we pushed out about the fact that airports are part of national critical transportation infrastructure and as such have to operate no matter what, should operate no matter what really make a difference in uh, the, the ability to move people and goods. And Pittsburgh is, a, is, is critical for the U.S., but also globally. I mean, there are a lot of businesses headquartered in Pittsburgh that have very strong ties to Asia, to Europe, to Latin America. Obviously, Amazon and a number of other cargo airlines are, have discovered Pittsburgh as an alternate cargo gateway, which is really big news and great for us. But at the end of the day, you know, like all airports in the U.S., we serve a community and that community, in order to really be what it can be, needs a vibrant airport. One of the roles that we do play is, uh, you know, we're the place where planes land when D.C. and New York get hit with weather. So we have a, a very robust diversion schedule that I can look back on over the past, you know, six, eight months and further back than that, that shows, you know, when there's weather anywhere in those major metro areas, the the airlines know that they can they can land at Pittsburgh. They can get their passengers taken care of. They can get the planes uh, taken care of. And um, and that's that's definitely important, an important role that we play. Let's switch gears a little bit, Christina. Ride-sharing, how has that impacted parking revenues uh, at Pittsburgh? And how do you offset that if it has? Well, first of all, we our parking lots are full. And I would say that, you know, Pittsburgh is unique. And if you remember where it is relative to the rest of the community, it's 17 miles outside of the city without a train. So we're competing with Uber and Lyft in some senses with our parking, but in others, I would say that it's a it's it's really the impact we've seen more to the taxi industry than to our own parking, because a lot of people come from further away than maybe an Uber or Lyft would make sense. So we still see our parking products very well utilized and uh, the taxi revenue, you know, what we've seen is a little bit of a, of a shift in in, in passenger uptake in terms of taxis versus Uber and Lyft. But at the same time, the markets, as the markets continued to grow, I would say that we're seeing Uber and Lyft and transportation network companies as a, as a real additive bonus to the airport. So we're happy to have them. Well, let's generalize that a bit, Christina. And what creative ways have you used to raise revenue for the airport? There's obviously the fees you charge to airlines to use 
the facility, but also concessions and other things. Um, I bet you've been particularly creative in this area. Yeah, we. I would say that the fees we are charging the airlines have continued, I mean, a pandemic aside, were, have continued to go down every year uh, since I got here and actually had started to decline right before I got here. So, you know, the, the bonds are paid off. We have the ability to drill for natural gas because we sit right on top of the Marcellus Shale. So that certainly has helped to raise revenue. And as an airport where we're sharing those revenues with the airlines, you know, the more that we earn outside of the airlines rates and charges, of course, the, the further down those rates and charges go. And that's been a very strong goal of ours. It's actually the first goal of our terminal modernization program was to stabilize airline rates and charges going forward. Uh, so we were hyper aware of the fact that without the airlines, nothing makes sense after safety. And, you know, you got to be safe and secure and you got to have airline service. And after that, then you can start to get creative. But then, of course, it becomes a virtuous loop, right, with the with the airlines and the cost structure. So I would say that, you know, we have we sit on eighty eight hundred acres. Um, we've got a quite a robust real estate development program that we are um, getting quite innovative with in terms of our neighborhood 91 and what we're doing with the additive manufacturing industry in concert with the whole additive manufacturing ecosystem that's in Pittsburgh, you know, sponsored by and spun off by CMU Carnegie Mellon. We have an X-Bridge, which is, uh, we've taken 10,000 square feet at the end of one of our terminals and turned it into a place where airlines uh, and partners can test technology solutions and or other solutions for airports. And that's been um, quite interesting to us. We are repricing uh, parking products. We're looking at obviously our concession mix. Uh, so I would say that we're pushing on every available part of the organization in order to sweat the asset so that we can continue to uh, to lower the costs to those airline to to our airline partners. I'd love to be the first airport in the world where there's no charge to land. That's that's what I'd love to be. Maybe you can pay the airlines to land there. So, so. Uh, well, listen, we we have an incentive program, but <laughs> I, I would say that if we didn't charge them, uh, that would be a big that would be a big bonus, right? That's At some right. point, that's right. Absolutely. So, airports have been described as mini cities because there's so many services on the property. Do you feel like? You're the mayor or the sheriff <laughs> or what's your what's your what's your day job? No, it's it's yeah, look, I think I think that the the move from considering folks who run airports, you know, it used to be a director, director of aviation, director of the airport uh, to CEO. I think that's been a, an important shift because that's what we do. Right. I mean, I'm we're, we're running a massively complex infrastructure system. And we are, we have, you know, a police force, we've got fire, we've got uh, skilled trades, and we have retail, food and beverage. And we are, each one of us, self-contained and very much like a city. But I would also say that we have a responsibility to be a going concern, right? We have a responsibility to do more than keep the lights on. And I'm not saying that's what cities do, but to really push the envelope and make sure that it, it works for everybody who uses it, everybody. And whether that's passengers or partners, we have to make sure that the that the airport is really meeting the needs of the people who use it or work at it. And I think uh, CEO is a good title for that. I agree with you on that, Christina. <laughs> well, I want to bring up one sort of 
may, I don't know if it's controversial or not, but you know, I teach a class called airline economics at George Mason University. And most of our listeners know that. And when I talk about PFCs or passenger facility charges, one thing I tell them is that it's a form of financing that airports love, but airlines hate. And I think that's fairly accurate in general. So give our listeners your elevator pitch as to why PFCs should be increased and why they're actually good for customers. Well, why don't you tell me why you hate them? (laughs) Well, I think airlines hate them because they effectively raise the price of the airline ticket and there's such huge elasticity that when the price goes up even a couple bucks, they see a big demand drop. Okay, but let's back up here for a second because this is the part that drives me crazy. So, so the the PFC right now is four dollars and fifty cents, right? If you're an airport that's been approved for four fifty. So, if you raise the PFCs at a U.S. airport, you raise them for every single airline. And I think what we've all seen, especially with unbundling, is that actually the markets definitely got elasticity in it and significant, but. evenly applied across all is not going to drive down demand. So what I'd say is it's a user fee. It's it's a user fee that allows for us to take on the capital projects uh, that the airports need in order to run more efficiently and sustainably. And I, I still, honest to God, Ben, I do not understand an airline CEO or management's objection to it. I just don't get it. I think that what I do see, and I will tell you that I have seen, is I think that there's a concern and a distrust that the airport management won't manage it well. And that's a different story. And I think if, if we could have that conversation, um, we'd have, you know, we'd, we'd have a different conversation. I just think that there's a, a, a distrust in what that money would be spent on. And, um, you know, I... I I think that's a different conversation. That's a great answer, Christina. And I'm going to bring that answer to my class, in fact, because I think that's wonderful. Let me ask you one follow-up to that. If you could make the change, how much would you want 450 to go up to to sort of keep everything you said still right? Well, listen, I we'd be very happy with any increase because any increase allows us to bring forward our capital improvement programs, you know, like sewer systems and water lines. I mean, <laughs> the airports are not that old. If you really think about the aviation industry, right, the county airport in Pittsburgh, Allegheny County Airport was the first commercial airport in Pittsburgh. It's turning 90 on September 11th. It's a a horrible birthday, but that's its birthday. It'll be 90 years old. So if you think about a lot of airports were only really even built in the last 30, 40, 50 years, we've got systems that need to be upgraded. There's stuff around technology that could make them work more efficiently. I know that there are some people who support up to a $4 increase. Look, I'd take it, but I'd be happy with a $2 increase for the PFC because it would allow us to clear the backlog and quite frankly, you know, not have to rob Peter to pay Paul when it comes to deciding on which infrastructure projects have to get taken care of. So I just would really welcome the opportunity to have a meaningful conversation around this because I think we're that we're losing the point by talking about whether or not it should go up a dollar or four dollars. The fact is that if we want airports to run uh, and keep costs down for the airlines, then the, the infrastructure needs to be upgraded full stop. Christine, I'm going to let you have the last word here. Uh, before we go, what would you like our our listeners to know about Pittsburgh Airport that we haven't covered? 
What would I like the listeners to know? What I'd like, let's see, Pittsburgh Airport serves the community of Western Pennsylvania. It's Western Pennsylvania's airport. And what I'm more interested in talking about is the market, because at the end of the day, airlines don't serve airports, they serve markets, right? And, and it's not about how many gates or how many runways or how, how efficiently we plow the runways. It's about the market and who's in it. And I think that this story that is not getting out as well as it should is what's going on in the Pittsburgh market and what the community is like. Um, I, I travel, you know, still, and I'm still surprised at how many people have what I would consider to be the old version narrative of, of who and what Pittsburgh is. And, and I think that the exciting parts of Pittsburgh that allow us to do such great things at the airport are, you know, that's the story around the tech community, what's happening at Carnegie Mellon as a leader in AI and robotics, what that's doing in terms of um, growth in some really cool sectors. You know, Duolingo was founded in Pittsburgh and is its first unicorn. Um, I was just dropping my son off at college and uh, overseas, and people were talking to me about, oh, have you ever heard of this con- uh, company called Duolingo? I said, yeah, it's a Pittsburgh company. Oh my God, really? So I think that, you know, what I'd like people to know is that Pittsburgh itself is a really cool community and the airport just serves it. I mean, we're really just meeting the demands of that, of the community. And in some cases, you know, we're pushing out as a leader in being able to help with economic development, like with this Neighborhood 91 uh, development, in order to see a whole new industry spring up in Pittsburgh um, because it makes sense. So that's what I'd say is that it's a cool community and uh, there's a lot going on at the airport itself, but that's only because there's a lot going on in the community itself. Well, Christina, this has been a terrific conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on our 100th episode. I'm sure our listeners have learned a ton, just like Chris and I have. Well, uh, listen, Ben, we'll have to have this debate in front of your class on the PFC. (laughs) You're welcome anytime. That's great. (laughs) Well, thank you both for inviting me and congratulations on 100 episodes. Thanks, Christina. We'll be back with more Airlines Confidential in a minute. The Airlines Confidential Podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. We hope you enjoyed that conversation with Christina Casotas. And now let's take some listener questions. Remember, you can leave a question on our voicemail at 202-964-0177, or you can email us at questions at airlinesconfidential.com, or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms, and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential podcast. Ben, our first question is from Kevin in Baltimore. Hey guys, thanks for the great episodes. I got a quick question. At capacity restricted airports, either by slots or gates, such as DCA, Santa Ana, Orange County, or New York LaGuardia, why don't airlines use their largest equipment available? For example, why would you use an Airbus 319 instead of a 320 or 321? Thanks for addressing and happy and safe flying. 
Great question, Kevin. And I guess a, a smart answer would be because a 319 is bigger than an E190. <laughs> but the real answer is that slots have a use it or lose it rule in most cases. Obviously, the governments and local authorities that run these airports have been more flexible in COVID times with not every flight working, of course. But in general, if you don't use a slot regularly, you run the risk of having that slot taken away from you and reallocated to someone else. So when airlines are scheduling planes, they're looking at the size of the market and they want to serve that with the lowest trip cost airplane that meets all of the demand. So it's possible, for example, that on a flight from DCA to a real popular place like Orlando or something, that will support a 321 and all the seats on that plane. But to a smaller market, say to a Columbus or something like that, Yes, it would be cheaper per seat for them to fly the 321, but if they're only going to carry 120 or 130 people no matter what, the 319 becomes a more efficient plane to use on that trip. So flight planners are looking to use the planes they have and deploy them in the most profitable way they can. Sometimes that isn't the most seat cost efficient plane, but it might be the most trip cost-efficient plane. That's why Airbus with its 319, 320, or 321, or Boeing with its multiple sizes in its 737s are such popular airplanes with airlines because they can train the pilots once, they can train the mechanic once, but fly different size airplanes for different kinds of missions. And what that does is it restricted airports it allows airlines to meet their usage requirement so that they're using the slot enough so that they run no risk of losing it. Good answer, Ben. I mean, you know, look, I think we'd all like to see the biggest aircraft possible uh, on a route, but sometimes it doesn't make sense to, for economic reasons, like you point out, to run the largest aircraft. And, you know, hopefully what we've gotten away from, though, is we had a lot of airlines 15, 20 years ago sitting on slots that were operating not even regional jets, but turboprops and, and into capacity-controlled airports. So a lot of that has gone away. There used to be, if I recall, there used to be restrictions on, that there were certain slots that couldn't be used for larger aircraft. And when we were at U.S. Airways, we were successful in changing the law so that they were much more adaptable. But you know, ultimately, you're right, you want to put the largest equipment and use that most efficiently, but you got to use it profitably as well. And then, Chris, our friend Schwao from Italy wanted to know more about news regarding IAG considering a low-cost venture out of Gatwick. I guess our collective skepticism last week wasn't enough for him. <laughs> it looks like he's asking to get us into the psyche of decision-making. He wrote this. So, guys, on the last episode, you mentioned IAG's new low-cost venture. Ben said it wasn't the best of ideas, so I'd like to ask more about it to you guys. Why does it seem like these big groups' favorite hobby is creating new fancy brands aiming for a leaner operation? I mean, IAG already has Welling, which for once is not a massive bottomless pit of money, has brand recognition and scale, and it has Level, which pretty much failed with COVID. So why another brand? These ideas that look silly for the external observer who knows nothing, and because I know nothing, I don't really want to say it's a bad idea, but why does it look like a good one for the group insiders? 
Thanks for the question, Joao. I'm going to use my days in politics as kind of a parallel response. So when I worked on Capitol Hill a long time ago, we used to joke that you know there were 100 members of the Senate, and every morning, each of those 100 generally men, when they were shaving, but now with women, when they were putting on their makeup, or maybe there are some men that shave and put on makeup, I don't know. But every morning, when those 100 senators were looking in the mirror, they looked at that person in the mirror and thought about the person in the White House and said, I could do the job better than that guy in the White House. And so I think there's a little bit of this here with some airline executives who every day look in the mirror and say, notwithstanding the fact that this is a failed idea time and time again, we can do it better and we can do it right. And so I think there's a belief that they've got the recipe to the secret sauce and you know, investors put up money for these ideas. So they allow companies to pursue them with with the capital that uh, private investors have put into the company. So they think that they can do it better than others and they have the financial wherewithal to try to do it. And so that gives them oxygen to go do that. I, I don't know, Ben, do you have something to add to that? Well, what I have to add, Chris, is I've gotten a little more information that has been shared publicly about this since our last show. Apparently, this airline is not going to be a new brand in the sense of having a new name. It will be called British Airways. So in that sense, it's not a brand. But they said it will have the same service on board as British Airways, but have a different operating certificate, which I find very interesting, and they expect to pay their pilots and flight attendants less. Sounds to me like the very old American Airlines AB scale again. Mm -hmm. And that to me makes me even more skeptical about whether it's going to work. The fact that they think that they can essentially lower fares to customers on the backs of their employees in a way, but keep the British Airways brand and effect on that. So the more I learn about this British Airways Gatwick idea, the the worse it sounds to me, Chris, to be honest. Well, Zrao, I don't know if we fully answered your question, but we tried, but uh, we appreciate you writing in. Ben, last questions for me. Did you finish that book list and when will it be up on the website? That's a great question, Chris. Yes, we have finished our initial book list. And I say initial because I imagine that over time we'll add books that we find and hopefully you listeners will recommend books that you recommend on the airline business. But we have our first list. It's got about 15 or or 20 books on it. I'm sure it'll be up within the next week. Well, Finer Wine is next and shout outs as well, but a reminder that Clear makes travel safer and easier. Become a member of Clear and you'll enjoy frictionless journeys when you use Clear's home to gate feature, which lets you know exactly the best time to leave for the airport. Plus, Clear's signature experience helps you move seamlessly through the airport security system. Where will you go? Get back out there with Clear. Chris, this Finer Wine is from Vicky in Fort Worth. I came to the airport to pick up a minor child. I arrived an hour ahead. I was thinking this is plenty of time as I am not checking in for a flight. I'm just picking up a child. Realizing that I had to go through security, an hour I thought would be plenty of time. You have to go through the entire check-in process as if you were checking for the flight. No one cares if a child is left at the gate waiting for you. The Southwest check-in staff was not helpful, and there was no empathy in relation to a scared child who is alone at the gate waiting on his parent. Again, this was not handled with any kind of empathy or compassion for a child. 
Chris, what do you think? I'm going to have to give Vicky a wine, and I'm going to make some assumptions here. It sounds like whether this was her child or her grandchild or the neighbor's child, it sounds like somebody didn't pay for the unaccompanied minor fee or the child would be assisted and have a guardian with them at the gate waiting for the the parent or the adult to come retrieve them. So if I'm wrong about that, then I'll take my lumps and we'll change this to a fine. But it sounds like they weren't paying the unaccompanied minor fee. And so then consequently, you got to get there ahead of time. You got to anticipate the crowd and you have to maneuver through the system to get to the gate well ahead of the aircraft uh, debarking and, and the passengers coming off. So if you don't want to pay the fee, then you got to get there early. And this is a, this is a wine. That's a, it's a good response, Chris. What that fee does is ensures that that child is chaperoned, you know, from the airplane to the waiting adult, wherever that adult is, even beyond security. Well, that's it for the show this week. But first, I want to give my shout out. My shout out goes to Paul Veneto, who is a retired United Airlines flight attendant who pushed a beverage cart from Boston to New York in honor of the flight crews killed on 9-11. I thought that was such a thoughtful kind of thing. And anyone who's pushed a beverage cart as I'm sure many of our listeners have, know how difficult that thing must have been to push through a lot of the terrain that he had to get through from Boston to New York. So thank you, Paul, for that recognition 20 years later of how 9-11 affected airline employees as well as the whole world. That's a great shout out. And we'll be thinking of all airline employees this September 11th with the 20th anniversary. I, I want to give my shout out to the folks at Louis Armstrong International Airport in New Orleans. Four days after Hurricane Ida hit the region, some power had been restored to the airport, even though power is still out or was still out for much of the city, allowing some limited services to return late last week. The world loves the city of New Orleans and the people of New Orleans, and we're rooting for a quick recovery. With that, thanks again for listening. Thanks to all of our listeners and sponsors for 100 episodes and helping us be one of the top 1% of podcasts in the U.S. And with this one in the can, we can start the clock to number 200. Have a great week. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.